Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of this moment right now and not to presume upon, but rather to, to ask, to entreat you to come, send your spirit among us. We thank you for the scriptures, and yet apart from the work of your spirit, the scriptures remain a, a locked book for us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grant us the gift of illumination this morning. I pray as we open up Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, that you would give us um, insight into what's here. This is a treasure trove of a paragraph. The challenge this week was wondering what not to say. There's so much gold here, and I pray that we would just start the conversation with this message and, and continue it in our community groups this week. But to do that, we need your help. So would you be with us now in this effort? Show us our um, likeness as we look at the Pharisee and grant, Lord, that you would do deep work and heart transformation to make us more like this tax collector, we pray, for the glory of Jesus and for the forward motion of our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Well, at this time, I do invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Luke chapter 18 beginning in verse 9. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles in the seats in front of you this morning's passage is found on page 877. Page 877 in the red Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Last week we began our time of worship over the Word, and I shared with you about the critical importance that every sermon ought to be about one thing. This is going to be a little bit of deja vu this morning, because I was thinking in the same way as I was preparing. Uh, you call it a big idea, or a theme, or a proposition, a primary claim, whatever you call it. It's that thing in bold at the top of your outlines. Um, a sermon ought to be a single bullet, not, not buckshot. Now, granting that the sermon is biblical and ultimately aiming to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sermon still ought to be about one thing. My aim each week, each Sunday morning, is to preach the gospel, that's my one thing, by expounding the Bible to the people God has given me to love. Notwithstanding, the sermon that seeks to do that is best positioned to do that when it is about one thing. And I mentioned last week that sometimes that, that one thing, that sentence is a hard-fought battle, other times the sentence comes easier. Sometimes I find that somebody else has captured the heartbeat of a passage so well that I don't even attempt to improve upon it, and that's what's happened this morning. While he wasn't referring to this passage per se, as I kept reading and rereading this week's text, I couldn't help but be reminded of something uh, that the late John Stott once said about one of the greatest battles of our lives. Here's what he said. He said, at every step of our Christian development and every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Isn't that good? At every step of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. I don't think that's an overstatement. In my experience, that is true to life. And to see why, I'd like to start by just reading this morning's text front to back. So Luke chapter 18, verses 9 
to 14. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. At every step of our Christian development, at every stage of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. We've said it before, pride is not one of the seven deadly sins. Pride is the soil in which the seeds of all of the other six grow. Pride, just for a quick rough and ready definition, pride is thinking much about myself and of myself. That's what pride is. Thinking much about myself and of myself. That means that pride is an equal opportunity offender. Whether we love ourselves or whether we loathe ourselves, the problem is preoccupation with self. The person with sky-high self-esteem, the person with rock-bottom self-esteem, actually have quite a bit in common. Namely, esteeming oneself to begin with. So I hope that each of us here would be willing to admit that pride is a problem. In fact, I'd venture to guess that if you say pride isn't a problem for you, it is most definitely a problem in that case. So this morning, the parable in this passage is just designed to serve us, and it's designed to help us in two different ways, two specific ways to help us to learn to cultivate humility and to weaken pride. Two specific ways, to weaken pride on the one hand, cultivate humility on the other. So first point today. Beware the insidious temptation of justification by comparison. Beware the insidious temptation of justification by comparison. We are hardwired for this. It shows up very early on in our lives. And sadly, it lingers into our adult years. Jockeying for position at the front of the line finding a way by hook or crook to call attention to ourselves in some fashion or another, lifting ourselves up while putting other people down, even if it's done subtly. Ever since the fall, this is our native tongue. We human beings are people who have a tendency to justify our behavior, and we do it purely in light of the behavior of other people. And it's not just that, but we have a tendency to compare ourselves at our best with other people at their worst, which just isn't fair. 
The focus of the parable is crystal clear right at the outset, isn't it? We read in verse 9, He, it's Jesus, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You know, in one sense, you'd think that a person would do enough damage simply by trusting in themselves that they are righteous. But to add to that, to add to self-righteousness, to add to conceit, lo and behold, they not only trust in themselves that they are righteous, but they treat others with contempt. Um, that may seem at first blush like unrelated behavior, but it's, it's not. Uh, these two realities typically rise and fall together. To the degree that we trust in ourselves that we are righteous, we are likely to treat others with a certain amount of contempt. And at the same time, to the degree that we look away from ourselves, we seek to find our righteousness in Christ and Christ alone, we will be more inclined to treat others with honor, with respect, with sympathy. So let's begin with the problem. The problem is the insidious temptation of justification by comparison. We all, we all do it, and it's so well outlined by the description of the Pharisee. The parable properly begins in verse 10 as we read, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, th- this is a small detail, but I think it's worth noting. Luke, as an author, is a man of precision. By vocation, he's a physician. And in his line of work, details matter. And he brings to his work as a historian, and in this case as a geographer, a level of technicality and specificity here that I think is worth noting. The text says two men went up into the temple to pray. Two men went up into the temple to pray. That's exactly right. This, this complex known as the Temple Mount, situated in the city of Old Jerusalem, stands at a high elevation. So high, in fact, that the only way to access the temple was to go up into the temple. And furthermore, how does the parable itself end? When the parable wraps up, Jesus is describing which of the men go down to his home justifies. He, he says, gives another geographical detail when he says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. You hear it? He went down to his house. These details are small, but that's just the point. Luke writes as a careful chronicler of events. And if we can trust him in little specific details, we can trust him in broader strokes too. Bigger issues like the gospel, like the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Now in verses 12, 11 and 12, they contain the description of the Pharisee. Jesus packs a lot into two verses, and it's worth laboring them a little bit. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, this is a preacher's dream passage here. Let's just begin with the first-person personal pronouns. How many times do you see the word I in this two-verse prayer? You count carefully, you'll see five of them. I thank you, but I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Just grammatically speaking, who is the subject of this prayer? It's not the Lord. It's the man praying. He's praying about himself. 
This is a self-centered prayer. In fact, depending upon how you translate the first half of verse 11, one could even argue he's not even addressing God. He's addressing himself. If you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, you may notice a fascinating footnote that says, the Pharisee standing prayed to himself, saying, that's a legitimate translation of the original here. Even his pretensions have pretensions, and he's just getting started. A 19th century British preacher, Charles Simeon, observes, his thanksgiving was one continued eulogism upon himself. Now this afternoon, we will gather in order to celebrate the life of our dear sister, Karen Wimsat. And there is a special time set aside during our service to eulogize our sister. And I anticipate, based upon how many people loved Karen, it's going to be a very, very sweet moment together. The term eulogy is a compound of two Greek words, eu meaning good and logos meaning word. So to eulogize someone is to speak a good word on their behalf. On their behalf, not your behalf. And yet this is precisely what the Pharisee proceeds to do. He's going to go to bat for himself in the center of the temple complex. He's going to let God and everyone else know how fantastic he is. In fact, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says that this prayer amounts to, Lord, I thank you that I am such a great guy. He's impressed with himself. Prayer begins in verse 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And the tax collector you know is like, I'm right here. Sheesh. Right? It's interesting. I don't suspect there's any falsehood in verses 11 or 12. He's in all likelihood telling the truth. It's just that not all truths deserve to be told. He probably wasn't a leech on society or a rule breaker or a cheater on his wife. That's the negative side of the ledger. And then we read two positive self-assessments in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. With regard to fasting, if this is legit, this guy was a rock star. Because in the Old Testament, the Lord only commanded fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. This man is doing it twice a week. He's going on along at a pretty good clip. I, that blows God's standard out of the water. And relative to tithing, we already know that the Pharisees went overboard on this score. Remember what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 11, verse 42? You tithe mint and rue and every herb. You guys tithe out, tithe out of your spice rack. Now you're getting it done. I suspect that these things were true of him. Nevertheless, as we survey verses 11 and 12, this isn't prayer. This is pontification is what this is. The Puritan Matthew Henry looked at these two verses and commented, he went up to the temple to pray, but he forgot his errand. We're having fun with this because it's one of the best ways to deflate pride. Humor humbles us. In fact, humble people typically have a wonderful sense of humor, especially about themselves. 
Let's remember, as John Piper once said, that the parables of Jesus don't exist to get us off the hook. They exist to show us the hook that we are already on. We ought to be looking at the example of the man in verses 11 and 12 as we're chuckling and also thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, do I have a problem with pride? You say, well, I don't, I don't pray like that. And we might ask you in return, do you pray at all? One of the finest resources among our counseling booklets in Fellowship Hall right now is one written by Stuart Scott. I've mentioned it before. It's called From Pride to Humility. And in it, he lists what he calls the 30 manifestations of pride. I'll just list a portion of them for you and for me to think about. How does pride emerge in our lives? Through complaining? Through lack of gratitude? Through sinful anger? Perfectionism? Talking too much? Talking too much about ourselves? Being devastated by criticism? Being consumed by what other people think of you? By being unteachable or sarcastic or defensive or blame-shifting. A lack of asking for forgiveness. Being impatient with others, using others, being jealous of others. Not having close relationships. Should we go on? This list, if you give it some time, will just decimate you. I encourage you to give it some time. I realize we've had some... Good fun poking at the Pharisee here, but if you don't even see a little bit of yourself in the mirror of verses 11 and 12, I'm here to tell you, you're, you're sicker than you think. At every step of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Beware the insidious temptation of justification by comparison. Now, in case you're feeling like three centimeters tall at this point, I've got some really good news for you right now. We're, first of all, we're supposed to be three centimeters tall. That's how tall we are, actually. We imagine we're bigger, but we're not. We're not as impressive as we might think. And that's okay because of how justification in the Bible actually works. Point number two today. Be steadfast in your resolve that justification is by faith alone. Be steadfast in your resolve that justification is by faith alone. The Apostle Paul clearly believed and taught the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. What is justification? We keep using that word. What does it mean? Justification is a word that comes from the Jewish law court. Justification is about how a sinner can know right legal standing before God as our holy judge. Uh, Wayne Grudem defines justification as an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and he declares us to be righteous in his sight. That's justification. God declares, He reckons, He accounts us righteous in His sight because of the work of Christ on our behalf. The Apostle Paul taught this doctrine 
The question is, did Jesus teach it? The Apostle Paul clearly taught it. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And again in Galatians 2.16, your bulletin says 3.16, that was my error. Galatians 2.16, Paul writes, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. He, he couldn't be any clearer. He's falling over himself to be clear on this. Paul taught justification by faith alone. The question is, did Jesus? I think he did. And I think he did it right here in our text. The biblical doctrine of justification by faith that Paul says is present way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is here in seed form in verses 13 and 14. Let's begin with verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the, the great reversal begins in verse 13. Luke's gospel is filled with reversals. Here's another one. A tax collector, a hated man among the Jewish people, seen as a greed-driven colluder with the Roman government in the hip pocket of the Roman Empire, a tax collector happens upon the temple to pray. A strange sight if there ever was one. And notice it says he didn't get very far. He was standing far off. For examining the temple complex, he's probably at the outer edge of the court of the Gentiles. Probably not even approaching the temple proper. He was far off, the text says. He was well aware that his presence in the temple would more than likely be a stench in the nostrils of any Jewish worshipers there. Perhaps even most especially of God Himself. So he keeps his distance lest the fire of the Lord's displeasure fall on him and consume anyone else nearby. Verse 13 goes on to say, he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Both of which are, are clear signs of contrition in first century culture. Obvious displays of grief and sorrow over his sin. This man's sin is literally killing him. He can't even bear to lift his eyes to heaven. And finally, he utters a, a seven-word prayer, not nearly as ornate as the Pharisees, probably not as planned as the Pharisees, but it contains more solid theology than the Pharisees when he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's something I didn't know about this prayer. Um, in the original, the phrase, be merciful to me, is comprised of a phrase from a particular New Testament word group that only appears about four other times in the New Testament. And each time it appears, it's translated as propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement. In other words, this man isn't just asking for God's mercy like in a generic sense. This man is specifically pointing to the fact that if God is going to be merciful to him, that will have to be entirely bound up on the basis of a third-party blood sacrifice. One that will atone for his sins. Spectacular as they are, that's what this is going to cost. This prayer is about as orthodox as they come. God, be merciful to me. Atone for my sins. 
on the basis of a third-party blood sacrifice because I am a sinner. Finally, in verse 14, Jesus offers his summary of the parable. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, we've seen that last sentence before in Luke's gospel. It's one of Jesus' favorite phrases. We had a whole sermon with that title several months back. It's one of his favorite truths. He loved to surprise people with it. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. I'd like to linger on the first half of verse 14, if we can, for a moment. I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified rather than the other. What is this? This is the gospel. This is the gospel according to Luke 18, 9 to 14. No, Christ hasn't died yet. No, he hasn't been raised on the third day. No, the book of Romans hasn't been penned yet. But this is the gospel nevertheless. This is justification by grace through faith alone. Now we know that though we are justified by faith alone, that the faith that justifies, justifying faith, it's, it's never truly alone. You finish this phrase for, for me. Faith apart from works is, is dead. It's a dead faith. Nevertheless, justification, God's legal declaration over us as righteous on account of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, justification, it's not a legal fiction. It's real. And it's right here. Eventually, the Apostle Paul will write something like this in Philippians 3.10, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends upon faith. Now, we do have to reckon with what James says about justification. In James chapter 2, the texts are there in your outline, and it's a question that I think you can drill down on with your community group study questions in the weeks in this week ahead. But for now, we'll just leave it where Jesus leaves it. The tax collector brought nothing but a whole heap of his sin and a great cavernous need as he cried out to God outside the temple that day. And it turns out that was enough. That was enough because in time, Jesus would pay it all. So do you pray this way? Have you ever prayed this way? Have you ever heard somebody else pray this way. I won't ask you if you're humble. Um, that's a question that no humble person could possibly answer in the affirmative. That question's a trap, but just as Stuart Scott offers 30 manifestations of pride, he also offers 30 manifestations of humility. Let's look at a few of them here as we close. Humble people are overwhelmed with God's undeserved grace and goodness toward them. Humble people are gentle and patient. Humble people don't, don't see themselves, they don't consider themselves better than anyone else. Humble people have an accurate view of their gifts and abilities. Humble people are excellent listeners, good question askers, love to draw other people out. Humble people are thankful for criticism and reproof Humble people happily serve others. Humble people are quick to admit when they're wrong and they tend to minimize others' shortcomings in comparison with their own. 
Humble people are open and honest about areas where they need growth. Humble people repent of sin as a way of life. As Martin Luther said, when God calls us to repentance, he wills that our lives, our whole lives, be one long repentance. Now, if that list got under your skin, we have a few of these booklets in Fellowship Hall, From Pride to Humility. Perhaps you might take one home and work by it line by line, maybe alongside your spouse if you're married, or you could lead your children in a study of it. Better yet, if you really want to do a number, you have someone else take that test and see what they see in you, walking through that and giving you feedback. At the end of the day, nothing, and I mean nothing, creates humility in the heart of a human being quicker than dwelling on the heart of the gospel like we're doing right now. Psalm 103 verse 10 tells us that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And you want to know why? God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve because God treated His Son as our sins deserve. If you know Jesus, the next time somebody asks you, how are you doing? How can you honestly answer them? Better than I deserve. Paul wrote to church people in Romans 1.15 that I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why? Because a healthy believer loves to hear the gospel preached. The gospel thundering across our souls day in, day out has a built-in mechanism to keep us low like the tax collector outside the temple complex. Jerry Bridges once said, on your worst days, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond your need for God's grace. You want to grow in humility? Be steadfast in your resolve that justification is by faith alone. Let's review. At every step of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Two specific ways to weaken pride and cultivate humility. Number one, beware the insidious temptation to justification by comparison. Put that to death. And number two, be steadfast in your resolve that justification is by faith alone. It's interesting, it would be difficult to imagine a teaching more foundational to the Christian life than we found here today. And at the same time, it would be difficult to imagine a teaching more advanced than the one that we've bumped into here today. On the one hand, this two-sided coin with reference to which Jesus instructs us concerning justification by comparison on the one hand or justification by faith on the other, this is entry-level data that every single person on the face of the planet must do business with if they're going to come into a relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus. There's nothing more essential that you need to take on board right now if you don't know Christ than the truth of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Not justification by church attendance, not justification by sermon note-taking, not justification by baptism or the Lord's Supper, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is what makes the gospel such good news. It's been sung lots of ways over the years in the history of the church. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Just as I am without one plea, that thy, but that thy blood was shed for me. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, did you ever notice that phrase? This gift of righteousness, 
Scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. If you don't know God through Christ today, will you come to him? Will you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus? Like the tax collector in the parable today, say to him from the depth of your soul, say to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's the promise from Christ himself to you. You will go down to your house justified today. Counted righteous in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Now on the other hand, this parable isn't just for those who are taking their first steps with Jesus. As we've reflected on the text, we found that this is pretty deep waters. This isn't the kiddie pool. I mean, think, think about it for a minute. If pride isn't merely one of the seven deadly sins, but pride is the soil in which the seeds of all of the other ones grow, you can spend your lifetime putting to death the deeds of the flesh like depression and anxiety and sinful anger and addiction and sexual sin and sins of speech. By the Spirit, you can beat these sins into a poor corner of your life, into merciless submission, and yet still find that pride lurks at every turn. If pride is thinking much about myself and of myself, then truly this battle, the battle with pride, it's the final frontier. And yet if we belong to Jesus, we can be proud people pursuing humility by the grace of God. We can, empowered by the Spirit, strive to soar upward into God and outward into other people. That's the only cure for pride I know. You, you rivet your eyes on Jesus and then outward to see where you can be of help all day long. To come to know and experience the blessedness of self-forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. So this message isn't simply for sinners, it's also for saints in the room. It's, it's for saints with indwelling sin. Saints who battle pride. And fascinatingly, the, the lesson is the same for us too. We look not to the Pharisee, but to the tax collector. Our prayer is the same. God, be merciful to me, a saint with indwelling sin. Lord, turn me outward onto you so that I might behold the King in all of His beauty. Set me loose to love other people and to serve other people that I would be saved from a foolish and slavish preoccupation with myself. This parable is not just for sinners. It's for saints. So it turns out that John Stott was right. At every step of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, there are perils all around with this issue, particularly preaching on it. Lord, I'm, I'm quite aware of the danger of instructing others on pride and yet to the very real possibility that I am blind to much of my own. And so I pray that you would help us to see our blind spots and we're going to need your supernatural assistance for that. We're especially going to need brothers and sisters in the church to point out to us, to serve us, by offering us, um, as we say, an observation. 
And so I ask, first of all, Lord, that we would be people who in this church are, are committed to no longer playing the game of justification by comparison. And Lord, all of us can come out looking pretty squeaky clean depending upon who we compare ourselves with. And it's, it's a foolish errand. I pray that we would rather be people who look up into your eyes, O Jesus, our sinless, perfect, spotless Savior, and that we would be absolutely leveled to the ground. For though you are very God, you also are a human being, and you lived a perfect life. You underwent every temptation that any of us have ever undergone, and yet you withstood, you resisted, you lived a perfect life. And because of that, because of that achievement, that fit you to deal with our sin problem, in this case with our pride. And Lord, the cost of that is your broken body that bled out on the cross for each of us. I remember Carl Henry saying one time, how can anyone be arrogant when standing beside the cross? And so I pray, O oh God, that you would help us not to m ever move beyond the cross, but to press ourselves right to the foot of the cross and live our entire lives there, knowing that on the third day you were raised again and you dealt a death blow to sin and death and Satan and you've created possibilities for us, possibilities that include the, the queen of virtues, which is humility. How I pray that you would help us to cultivate genuine, spirit-born humility for our joy, for our ever-increasing and ever-lasting um, gladness in you and to be a fit vessel in your hands to serve other people. Help us to get low and go, to be about the mission that you've given us to be and make disciples this week. We thank you, Lord, for this text, and we ask that you would do the supernatural work of making us humble people, for it's only then we'll, that Jesus will be seen in all of his glory, lifted up where he belongs. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.